you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, and we will be in Exodus 17, beginning in verse 8. So as we've been going through the book of Exodus, we've seen this theme show up over and over and over, that God has a missionary heart. He desires the world to know him. He wants to be known. He wants Israel to know him, so he reveals himself. I am who I am. He wants Pharaoh to know him. Pharaoh says, I don't know the Lord, that I should obey him. And he makes known himself to Pharaoh. He wants Egypt to know him. In chapter 9, verse 16, he wants the nations to hear of his mighty deeds. God has a desire to make himself known and to be known. And that's the great joy of believers. We get to know God. Not just facts about God, but we get to know him. We get to know his person, his beauty, in an intimate relational way. And one of the things about believers is as we taste the goodness of God, we want to help others to taste of his goodness as well. We who know God desire to make God known. And we're going to see just that in our text today. We are going to start in Exodus 17, verse 8, and we'll read through verse 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. We'll read the rest of the text as we come along. But our main point today is going to be this. Make known God's supremacy to the nations. Make known God's supremacy to the nations. See, as we've been going through Exodus, it's not just we know God, But we know that he's supreme. We know there's none like him. Moses prays after the Red Seas parted. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? God tells Egypt, when we have the ten plagues, there's none like me. I want you to know there's none like me. So one of the things we're seeing is we know God's supremacy, his unrivaledness. So make known God's supremacy to the nations. So, first we're going to see, number one, expect God's supremacy to be opposed. 
the section we just read, chapter 17, verse 8 through 16, expect God's supremacy to be opposed. Secondly, in chapter 18, verses 1 through 12, expect God's supremacy to be embraced. Expect it to be embraced. And then our third point, quite honestly, we'll see how much time we have. We may just cap it there because there's just a lot here. So we'll just stick with those two points right now and just see where we're at towards the end. So number one, where we've been thus far before we get to expect opposition is God has single-handedly, exclusively redeemed and delivered Israel out of bondage. In chapter 14, he parts the sea, and Israel goes across, and when the Egyptians come, he brings the waters back, and they're destroyed. Egypt's in the rearview mirror. Israel is a free nation. They are people who are now free. But as we saw two weeks ago, there are enemies to them getting to the promised land. And two weeks ago, we saw that there are enemies from within. They start grumbling as soon, three days after the parting of the Red Sea. There is a sense in which within there is the opposition or the enemy of their own unbelieving heart, which we all have at times. Temptations from within to, to not trust the Lord's provision. But here, beginning in verse 8, we see there's also opposition that will come from without. So, verse 8. Number one, expect God's supremacy to be opposed. Some will reject it. So here we see in verse 1, Amalek comes to fight with Israel. See, redemption is not the end of conflict. You, you would expect God's bringing them out, and now it's just going to be a life of sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. Everything's going to be just wonderful and easy. And they come out, and they face war. They come out and there's opposition, there's conflict. Egypt's destroyed, they're free, yet they fight. For the Christian, we don't fight against flesh and blood. We don't pick up swords and, and go to war with physical people. But redemption, salvation, forgiveness, does not lead to just an easy life in this world. Jesus tells us, they hated me, they will what? They'll hate you. There's, there's going to be opposition in the Christian life. Oftentimes, becoming a Christian is when conflict starts, when opposition starts. And that's what we're finding here, is that God's people are going to be opposed. God has made known in the act of redemption that I'm unrivaled, and a nation rises up immediately to oppose them. I found in my life, when I became a Christian, that's when things started to get difficult. I know this might be hard to believe, but I actually had friends in high school. We, growing up, there were, I had a really close group of friends. Yes, me. Yeah. We were like thick as thieves. And then I became a Christian. And I tried not to hold it as holier than thou, I'm better than you, self-righteousness. But as, as soon as I couldn't do the things that they were doing, as soon as there were places that a Christian shouldn't go there, I was like, yeah, guys, I'm not going to go there. As soon as there were jokes that I, I just I didn't make anymore, as soon as there were behaviors and activities that I just would say, count me out this week, it was like, 
you're weird. And then you start saying, hey, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my only hope. And he's actually your only hope too. And then you stop just getting invited to anything. Right? Think about it at work. There are times where like people, you start making connections and you're like, yeah, I'm a Christian. That means I believe in Jesus. And then people are like, nope, nothing. Nope, don't want to go to lunch with you anymore. But as soon as we mention Jesus, there starts to be even little opposition. Maybe you grew up in a family where culturally Christianity is not acceptable. You become a Christian and what happens? You're ostracized from your family. That happens all over the world. There's going to be opposition to God when we follow him. There's opposition in this text right away. Notice, though, this is also the first time Israel must pick up the sword. Look at this text, verse 8. There's opposition. Amalek comes. They fight with Israel. Verse 9, Moses says to Joshua, Choose men from us and go out and fight with Amalek. Look down at verse 13. Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. God's people are called to fight here. This is the first time, though. Up till this point, Moses has waved his staff in the air, and what happened? God just did everything single-handedly. So what do we mine out of that? What what can we apply out of it? Up until this point, the work of redemption is exclusively a work of God. He single-handedly frees them. He single-handedly, without any participation of Israel, frees them from bondage. He rescues them apart from their work. Single-handedly, God does it. Now that they're a free people, he says, pick up the sword and fight. The means by which you'll have victory now that you're a free people will be you participate. Again, the application of this text is not Christians, the world hates us, pick up swords and go fight. But the application is that there will be opposition. The work of salvation is only God's. Jesus is sent by the Father. Jesus, not Jesus and us, went to the cross, bore our sins, bore God's wrath, died the death we deserved as a substitute, and Jesus and Jesus alone rose from the grave, securing salvation, single-handedly God. But those who come to Christ and trust in his salvation then are called to fight. That's why Ephesians tells us that we, we war, but not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and, and evil. The Christian is called to pick up the sword, figuratively speaking, to fight against evil in our own hearts, to push back against the evil of the world and say, the Lord has said. The fight begins once we're free. Here's the main point here. Look at verse 9. The battle's won on the hill, not on the field of battle. You realize that? What happens up on the hill with the staff is what determines victory, not Joshua and the people fighting. Here's what we see. Verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But what does he take in verse 9 with him up to the hill? What does he take? Staff, right? The staff has shown up all over Exodus. The staff is a symbol of God's presence and God's power. 
It's the staff that consumes the staffs of magi- the magicians of Egypt and shows God's supremacy. It's the staff that Moses waves in the air and it's filled with, with gnats and flies. It's the, wave that hit, or the, the staff that hits the ground and, and, and there's water turned to blood. The, the staff shows that God is present and God is the one miraculously working through Moses. The staff is waved in the air and water parts. The staff is waved back when they get on the other side and water comes. And it shows that God is working. God is the one fighting. God is the one who is supreme. So the fact that he brings the staff up to the hill, there's been so much ink spilled about what is the significance. There are people who say, well, his hands are raised, so it's a sign that if he's praying, they win. If they don't, they lose. There's people who say, because he's got a piece of wood and his hands are like this, it's a foreshadowing of the cross. I say, I don't know that that's the point of any of that. I think the idea is that the staff is there. And it's a sign, a visible sign to Israel. When the staff is up, God fights for his people. And they win. This is the first time they fought. Remember, this isn't a trained army. This isn't, these aren't people who have gone through boot camp and know how to handle a sword and, and are battle-tested. These are ex-slaves who somehow got some swords and are now facing an army. They should not win. And it's a visible sign. You are winning. Why? Because God's fighting through you. And when the hands go down, it's a visible sign. God's not fighting for you. And what happens? You're losing, right? So the battle is actually won on the hill as a sign that God is the one fighting through them and for them. Victory will be secured if God is with them. Defeat is assured if God is not with them. But do you notice the dilemma? Moses is a human. And no human can hold their hands up for a day. Right? He's not holding like 50 pound weights. And it's like, of course. All day, though, he's got a staff in his hand. After a couple hours, for me, probably after a couple of minutes, I'm ready to put my hands down. Right? Your hands start tingling, they start going numb, you start shaking, right? And all of a sudden that little staff feels like it's 10,000 pounds. And he drops his arms. But do you notice what God does? Because of Moses' human limitations, God supplies help. And how does God supply help? Through his people. He brings up with him Aaron and her. And when they see the staff drop and the people are being defeated, what happens? They say, let's help him. Let's bear the burden. Let's hold his arms up so that they win and we can help him. God often will supply his people's needs and help in the fight through his people. My wife has this quote that she loves from Martin Luther. God milks the cow through the milkmaid. God does the milking. He's sovereign in it, but how does he do it? Through means. What means? A milkmaid. God supplies for his people. He bears his people's burdens. He encourages his people. He upholds them. He propels them in the fight against sin and against the world and against Satan. How? Oftentimes through his people. Or to make it more personal, he will help you in your fight against the flesh. He'll help encourage you when you're discouraged, often through the person sitting behind you, or in front of you, or next to you, 
Like, look around. These are the people God has provided to help in our human weakness and limitations and say, keep moving forward, keep moving forward, keep moving forward. What happens? Well, let's continue. We've read verse 13. His hands stay up. Why? Because Aaron and Hur are holding them up. And what happens? Verse 13. Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Victory. God provides victory for his people. Their first battle. First time they have to draw the sword. Opposition to God's supremacy comes. A nation rises up as soon as they're redeemed and says, we're going to get you. And they have victory. And it's all because of God. And it's all because God works through his people. God defeats his enemies and his people's enemies. Again, the application to this is not every enemy you face, God will destroy. The financial enemy, going to be gone. Health enemy, going to be gone. That's not the application. And praise God, not to get out of balance, he does provide victories in those areas, right? There are times God in his goodness and grace says, I see you have a financial burden, and he lets us free from it. There are times where he delights in healing the sick. But the thing is, the scripture doesn't promise that in the here and now. But the application is, he defeats all of our spiritual enemies. All of them. The world that will oppose his people, that will mock you, that will persecute you. Well, one day you will be shown to be victorious because you're on the winning side. Death that so plagues all humans. The moment Christ rose is a defeated enemy. Oh, death, where is your sting? The flesh that so entangles us and trips us up. The scriptures tell us he defeats that. The power of Christ overcomes all of these enemies, all of these oppositions, and victory is secure. He defeats them all. But notice what they continue to do before we get to the second point. Verse 14 through 16. God gives them victory against the opposition. Opposition comes and God says, I'm giving victory. You win because I'm on your side. And then the immediate response is make sure you don't forget. Have you noticed this pattern in the book of Exodus? God gives a victory, and what is he concerned with? Don't forget. I'm going to give you victory over Egypt. Passover is going to come. Make sure you do that every year, because I know humanity's hearts often are prone to forget. So do the Passover every year, so Israel remembers. Here, I've given you victory in the first battle. You've drawn the sword for the first time. Make sure you don't forget that I gave a victory. And he tells them to do two things. Number one, he tells Moses to write something down on a scroll. Verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Interesting. Why does Moses record this? Where is Israel at the point of this writing, and what are they about to do? Well, Moses is about to die, and Israel is going to go into the promised land, and who's going to lead them? Joshua. And anyone know one of the nations that they're going to have to draw the sword against? Starts with an A, 
the Amalekites. So they've gotten victory here, but the Amalekites aren't utterly wiped out. The, the Amalekites are actually going to show up quite a bit in the Old Testament. Israel is going to have to fight them, and Saul is going to have victory, but he doesn't kill the king, Agag. So Saul, or Saul, Samuel, those S's get me, Samuel has to come and kill him. They're going to show up. Eventually, David's going to fight them and defeat them. But Moses is writing here to a people who are about to go into the land and face these people. And what does he say? Remember the victory here. Because that's going to be precedent, and there's a promise moving forward that you will have victory. So you fight in light of promised and ultimate victory. Victory is assured. God says, I will blot them out. So Israel looks back and says, he fought for us. And put down in this scroll, he fought for us. So that when you go into the land and fight them, you have this promise. The God who gave us victory then, guess what he's going to do when we face them in battle again? He's going to give us victory again. It encourages his people to persevere in the battle. You realize that's the whole point of the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation is not written so you take... 433 divided by 6, add 7, and now you know when Jesus is coming back. The book of Revelation, the point of the book of Revelation is not open your newspaper and figure out who the Antichrist is. Those are distractions. The whole point of the book of Revelation is this. You will face opposition in this world. But we know the end. He wins, and you're on his side. So persevere in trials, persevere in persecution, Persevere against this world and your flesh because you are on the winning side. Future victory is promised and it propels present perseverance. And that's the idea here. You're going to fight. You're going to face them again. You know you're going to win. Why? Because God said so. And he proved it by defeating them here. You're going to fight against your flesh until the moment you stop breathing. But we know we're on the winning side. Why? Because he said so. You're going to face opposition in this world. People will rise up against the supremacy of God that you proclaim. They'll hate you. Not because of you, but because they're opposing the message you carry. Because they oppose Christ. Take heart. He's overcome the world. Take heart. He said he will conquer. Keep pressing forward, brothers and sisters. Keep moving forward in our fight against our own flesh and in our proclamation of the supremacy of Christ over all things because he wins. Don't forget it. He's given us more than just a scroll to remind us. He's given us this whole book whereby we can draw promises and say, that's an anchor for my soul. He's promised me he'll never leave me nor forsake me. So when I go into these situations and I feel alone, I'm not alone. Why? Because he said so. He's promised me victory over the flesh. He's promised me that, that death, when I face the reality of that, oh, death, where is your sting? I have promises. I am the light of the world. Anyone comes to me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of what? Life. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who comes to me, though he die, yet he shall live. I have these promises so I can remember as we face these difficulties, as we, we face these trials, that we have victory. He also does something else. 
He tells them to build an altar. And most commentators, most Hebrew scholars think this word altar, it doesn't have the idea of offering sacrifice kind of altar, but more so like pile of stones kind of altar. Anyone read Joshua? They go across the, 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 the river, I want to say Red Sea, but they go across the Jordan River, and what does he say? Make a pile of stones, right? Why does he do that? There's a pile of stones, 12 stones, so that whenever people walk by, they say, hey, Dad, why is there a pile of stones here? And they say, well, well, son, well, daughter, the Lord parted this river, and he brought us into this land, and he gave us this land. Don't forget, here they're building an altar, almost like a memorial, a pile of stones, a memorial. And what, are they, what does Moses call the pile of stones? The Lord is my banner. Well, that doesn't help me. What's a banner? What's a banner? A banner is this military thing that when you go into battle, it's like a flag or something that, that you can visibly see. And when you need to rally back together, it's the rallying point. If you need instruction, you go back to the banner and you get instruction and go back into... And the whole point is this. This pile of rocks is a reminder the Lord fights for his people. He's present in the battle with his people. His people are not alone in the fight. They have support. They have a shield. They have a refuge. They have an instructor. They're not alone. The Lord is the banner of his people. He's present with his people in the battle. They're never alone. God's people have God's presence. Always. When you go into your workplace and you're, you're feeling, I'm the only Christian here. Everybody is doing things that I just convictionally can't do. They make fun of me if I, if I say that I don't do those things. I try not to be self-righteous, but they just oppose me. There's, there's agendas at my job that I may lose my job if I don't affirm. What am I going to do? You're not alone. The Lord is with you. The Lord is your banner. He's present in the battle. So number one. Number one, God's supremacy will be, it will be opposed. Expect it. Jesus said it will happen. Expect it. Don't be surprised. Second point, God's supremacy will be embraced. This is not just a doom and gloom. All we have is opposition and everyone's going to hate Jesus forever. Some will come. And that's what we find next. So before we get into chapter 18, it seems when we read through this that they're unconnected. It's like, we talk about the Amalekites coming, and then Jethro comes. What's the point? What's the connection? They, they seem disconnected. Well, Moses actually is intentionally putting them together, and he does a couple of things with, with the words he uses to almost like take a stitch and sew them together so that we actually have to see them together. So just for a second, just look down at your Bible. Chapter 17, verse 8. The Amalekites came and fought. They came and they fought. The nations oppose God. They come and fight. Jethro's a Midianite. That means he's not an Israelite. He's one of the nations. And notice what it says in verse 5. Same Hebrew word. He came. But down in verse 7, the ESV says welfare, and the Hebrew word is peace. So one comes to fight, and one comes in peace. There's more verbal connections. 
In chapter 17, verse 9, Moses tells Joshua to choose men to fight. In chapter 18, verse 25, Jethro tells Moses to choose men to help him make judgments. Same word, choose, choose. Moses has to sit down because he's tired in 17, verse 12. He sits down to judge in 18, verse 13. And then one of the most important connections is in chapter 17, verse 12. Look at chapter 17, verse 12. It says that his, his hands grew weary. Literally, the word in Hebrew is they grew heavy. And notice what Jethro says to him in chapter 18, verse 18. This thing is too heavy for you. So, so Moses is drawing these two stories together on purpose. They're not just randomly put there. They're put there on purpose. So my question is, why? He puts two things together. We have the nations come to oppose, and then now we have one from the nation who comes and accepts. We said in the beginning, God is setting out in Exodus to make himself known to the nations. He's, he's, he's wanting to make himself known to all people. And some will oppose, but guess what? Some respond. Some come. So second point, expect God's supremacy to be embraced. First point under, sub-point number, under, under number two, Jethro hears. Jethro hears. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard. What did he hear? Notice what he doesn't hear about. Hey, I heard that, Moses, you're such a good leader, and you devised such a wonderful plan that you freed the Israelites. How'd you do it? Notice what he doesn't hear. I heard the Israelites became so large in number that they overpowered the Egyptians. How'd you guys do it? What does he hear about? He hears about the God of Israel. And the God of Moses. Verse 1. I heard of all that God had done. For Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord, the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Fame of God's work of redemption. Fame of God's work of freeing Israel is spreading. What did he say in chapter 9? You don't have to turn there. But just listen to chapter 9, verse 16. But for this purpose, I have raised you up, he's speaking to Pharaoh, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God has done this work to redeem Israel. And what's happening? Exactly what he wanted. His fame is spreading in all the earth. Such that a Midianite priest, who happens to be his father-in-law, comes and says, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard what God has done. The nations need to hear that still today. You realize there are, are literally two, over 2 billion, with a B, billion people on the face of the earth as you breathe in this room right now who've never heard the name of Christ. The Lord desires his name to be known. There is an urgent need for missions to lift high the supremacy of Christ to the nations that he would be known. 
that the nations would hear of his works. They would hear there is one who reigns supreme over the universe. And he's loving, and he's good, and he sent his son to die, and his son rose to give you life. The nations need to hear. And the way they hear is through us, through his people. Secondly, look on at verse 8. Jethro hears, verse 8, Moses tells. I've heard stories, Moses, and Moses is like, you're throwing me a softball. He's like, let me tell you. Let, let me tell you about. You've heard? Let me tell you more. Verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law all the Lord had done. Oh, let me, let me tell you of God's power. I literally picked up a stick and I went like this. And guess what happened? A sea parted. And I, we walked through it. And we walked through on dry ground. We walked through a on dry ground. And when we, we came back, the Egyptians were coming. They were going to get us. And guess what I did? I waved my stick. And what happened? The Lord won. He's got power over the sea. Oh, by the way, I waved the stick and, and plague after plague after plague. He can make the sun stop, but he can make it shine in Goshen. He, he can make the Nile turn to blood. There's none like him. There's none like him. He controls the sea. He controls the air. He controls the earth. He's over everything. He's supreme. Let me tell you all he's done. But notice what else the text says. He doesn't just say, and it's been just wonderful ever since. What does the text say in verse 8? He told all the Lord had done to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the hardship. You realize he's being a realist? He, he's being honest. I came. I believed. And I began to follow him. But it's been hard. It's been hard. We got three days into the wilderness and we had no water. And then we finally came to water three days later and we, it was undrinkable. Yes, we grumbled. But you know what the Lord in his kindness did? He gave us sweet water. And then we, we went a little farther, and we had no food to eat. And you know what he did? And he's done every single day since, in the midst of our hardship, in the middle of the wilderness, with no food to eat. He's rained down this bread-like substance. We don't even know what it is, but it's good. The word manna literally means, what is it? That's what the text says in 17. It fell down, they said, what is it? They, they said, manna, what is it? It's something, but we can eat it. Right? He's been so kind. It's been hard. We had no food, but he's provided. Oh, and then we came, and we had no water again. I hit a rock, and water came shooting out, and he, he gave the whole nation water out of a rock. It's been hard. We had literally had the biggest army in the world barreling down on us. It has not been easy. Following Yahweh has not been easy, but he's been with us. And he's been good to us. He's provided for us. He's demonstrated his care for us. That's the kind of witness we need. It's not, hey, if you become a Christian, everything gets better, and it's just a, it's a wonderful, easy life after that. Come believe in Jesus, and all your problems will go away, and you'll never have difficulty. No, we need to tell people, following Jesus will have heartache. 
All of the difficult things that happen to people who aren't Christians will happen to Christians. But God's with us. And he's there. He's a comfort. He's a support. He's strength. He's our peace. He loves us in spite of it. And, in, and through it. Being a Christian doesn't mean that, that you'll never have trials. It does mean he's with you in them. Moses tells. That's our job. Is to confess to people and proclaim to people the goodness and superiority and supremacy of God. That the nations would hear. And our job is to tell. That's the job of all Christians. Single Christians in this room, guess what your job is? Tell the nations. Married Christians in this room, guess what your job is? Tell the nations. Young Christians in this room, guess what your job is? Tell the nations. Retired Christians in this room, guess what your job is? Tell the nations. Rich, poor, highly educated, not highly educated. Our job as disciples is to tell. It's to tell. Unless you think, well, they keep talking about telling people about Jesus, and I feel so bad, so I guess i got to tell somebody now. He is so worthy of talking about. This isn't just a guilt trip, I guess I should do it. He is worthy. Consider the goodness of your God. That though you rebelled against the king of the universe, though he says, this is how you should live and enjoy me, and we say, nope, we're going to do it our way. He still sends his son to die in your place and offers complete and total forgiveness of your sins, offers a a return to his presence and restoration of relationship, gives you a hope and a promise of being in a world that is fully restored. He's so good. I mean, like, my kids score a goal in soccer, and I go, I just want to tell you, my kids scored a goal in soccer. My son scored three baskets. He's going to be the next Michael Jordan. He's definitely going to the NBA. And I just brag on them. Right? I just, it's, it's so good and exciting to me, I just want to brag about it, right? What if, I don't have social media, but what do people do? They go hiking, and they see a beautiful sunset. And what's the first thing they want to do? They want the whole world to see it, right? Because it's so beautiful. And they post it on Facebook or Instagram. It's, you see something beautiful. You, you see something that fills your heart with wonder, and what do you want to do? Other people need to know about this. That's how we should be with our God. Once we've tasted his goodness, once we've seen that he is altogether lovely, once we see the beauty of our Savior, we want to speak about it. It doesn't mean we just have to shove it down, be forceful with people, or be rude to people, or abrasive, but we want to talk about it. Have you heard about Jesus? He really does love sinners. Have you heard about Jesus? He rose from the grave. Have you ever heard of anybody coming back? I've got to tell you about my friend Jesus. I need to tell you more than just my friend, my, my Savior and Lord Jesus. Our job is to be like Moses and to tell. And notice lastly, Jethro responds. Jethro responds, verse 9. Hey, Moses, I've heard about all God has done. Moses, let me tell you more. Jethro, verse 9. Jethro rejoiced. Again, this is not an Israelite. This this is not Aaron's dad. This, This is not Levi's descendant. This is a Midianite. 
for lack of a better word, this is a pagan. And he rejoices for all the good the Lord had done for Israel. And then verse 10, or Jethro is going to open his mouth, and he blessed the Lord. He spoke well of the, he blessed the Lord who had delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh. And then look at verse 11. What is the word I've said, let's circle this all over the place in the book of Exodus? The word no. God wants the nations to what? No. And what does the Midianites say? Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. He proclaims the same thing Moses does on the other side of the Red Sea. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, awesome in power, doing wondrous deeds? Jethro hears this and he says, there's none like him. There's none greater than this one. There's none that can control the sun and the, and the, the land and the sea. He's unrivaled. He's supreme. He's superior. The nations, this is a sign, the nations will come. That's God's heart. That's God's heart. Not just in the... Listen, if we could just blow up an idea from the book of Exodus that people commonly think is, let's blow this up. It's not that God loves Israel and all of a sudden has a change of heart in the New Testament and then loves the nations. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God and they have a heart. He has a heart for the nations. From Genesis to Revelation... He has a heart for the nations. He wants the whole earth filled with people who reflect his rule and reign in Genesis 1. He wants, in a sense, he wants people who reflect his glory to fill the earth. After sin, that doesn't change. Genesis 12, uh, Abraham is going to have one who's going to be a blessing to the nations. You realize in Isaiah 19, the very nation that God just defeated will come to him and worship him? Isaiah 19, Egypt will come and worship around his throne. You get to the New Testament, make disciples of all nations, all people groups. We're going to turn, we don't turn a lot, but let's turn to Revelation. Just see, his heart for the nations is all over the book of Revelation. Revelation 5, verse 9. He says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people from, for God from every tribe, language, and nation. Chapter 7, verse 9. We read it this morning already. After this I look and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. Chapter 14, verse 6. This is one of my favorites. When I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Revelation 15, verse 4, speaking of the Lamb, in the middle of this quote about the Lamb, but verse 4, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. Revelation chapter 21, get to the very end of the book. Revelation 21, verse 24. 
You don't need a sun anymore. Because the Lamb is the light. And guess where this light will shine? By its light, all what? All the nations will walk. Revelation 22, verse 2. Very last chapter of the Bible. There's a river of life flowing from the middle of the throne, going down the middle of the street of this city with a tree of life that has leaves for the healing of the what? The nations. God has a missionary heart from cover to cover. First chapter to last chapter. His desire is for all the world to know, all the world to be filled with his glory, with a knowledge of him. And this text in the book of Exodus tells us this. People will believe. People will oppose it. People will hate it. People will reject it. But it won't be all people. God promises us there will be people from every tribe, nation, tongue. That is a great comfort and a great encouragement to continue to open our mouths and tell people about Jesus because people will believe. I don't know about you, if I'm completely honest with you, you start sharing the gospel and people kind of give you the stiff arm enough and you're like, people aren't going to believe this. Like, I've shared the gospel with this person like 10 times, and all they do is roll their eyes at me at this point. They're never going to believe. Why would I even continue? Those people out there, they're the kind of sinners that they're really bad. They'll never believe. My Bible rebukes that mindset in me. It says in in Romans 1.16, I am sure of this. I'm unashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. It is. Not it might be, it, it, hopefully it will. It is the power of God unto salvation. It saves people. And we should expect people to embrace it. It's the Lord who does the work, but we should expect him. Lord, work, save, save, save people. Well, like I said, we have a third point that we're just going to push to next week. If we could just encourage you with this. Expect opposition. The Lord's with you in the midst of it. Expect people to believe. He has a heart for the nations, and the nations will come. Let's pray.